Travis. Travis told me on Sunday, he said, don't blame me for the weather all week. And so that was a good comment. That was really good to be able to do. Well, I'm glad that I'm here. It's fun to be able to get up early in the morning with all y'all and be here, and it's good stuff with that. So if you've got your uh, books, page 52 is where we're going to be, and that is session 15. And in the midst of that, we're going to watch a little video clip um, as Eric's running. There he goes. He forgot about my video clip. That's okay. And so we're going to watch a little video clip to define for us a little bit of what a good day and a bad day might look like and how we as men respond to that. One of the best days of my life. All right, what is the best day of your life? You mean ever? Yeah, best day ever in your whole life. And you can't do when your kids were born. That's too easy. I got one. I'm seven years old, and my dad takes me to Yankee Stadium, my first game. We're going in this long, dark tunnel underneath the stands, and I'm holding his hand, and we come up out of the tunnel into the light. It's huge. How green the grass was brown dirt, and that great green copper roof, remember? And we had a black and white TV, so this was the first game I ever saw in color. Sat there the whole game next to my dad. Taught me how to keep score. Mickey hit one out. Good day. I still love the program. All right, what was, what was the worst day you ever had? Worst day. A couple of years ago, Barbara finds a lump. What? Jesus. Yeah, it's kidding. You never said anything. Yeah, well, you know, it turned out to be nothing, but that whole day was... Yeah, but that was a good day. How? Because it turned out to be nothing. Yeah, but the whole day until then was horrible. Yeah, but it came out good. You're a real, the glass is half empty kind of a guy, you know that? I don't know how Barbara can stand it. Yeah. All right, I got one. My best day. This isn't the one about Arlene and that loose step, is it? No. No, my wedding day. What? Yeah. Remember that day? Outdoor wedding. Arlene looked great. Those water pills really worked. You guys were all smiling at me, and my dad, in the front, gives me a little wink. You know? I mean, he's not the warmest of men, but he winked. You know, I was the first one of us to get married and have a real job, and I remember thinking, I'm grown up. You know, I'm, I, I'm not a goofball anymore. I made it. I felt like a man. It's the best day of my life. What was your worst day? Every day since is a tie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ed, your best day. What is it, twins in a trapeze? What? No, I don't want to play. Come on, we did it. I don't feel like it. Okay. I'm 14 and my mother and father are fighting again. You know, because she caught him again. Caught him. This time the girl drove by the house to pick him up. And I finally realized he wasn't just cheating on my mother. He was cheating on us. So I told him. I said, you're bad to us. We don't love you. I'll take care of my mother and my sister. We don't need you anymore. And he made like he was going to hit me, but I didn't budge. Then he turned around and he left. Never bothered us again. But I took care of my mother and my sister from that day on. That's my best day. 
What was your worst day? Same day. Tough, huh? You can see a tying line in those things that there was a time that their best day was when they felt like a man. When you feel like a man, there's something in you that goes, yeah, this is right. This is what I'm supposed to be about. This is what God created me to be. And for one, it was the, the manhood of walking into Yankee Stadium. For another, it was the manhood of your dad saying, hey, you've grown up and you've made it. For another, kind of standing up for the fight and saying, okay, I'm in this. I'm a warrior. I'm not going to be a wimp. I'm going to stand up for this. And at the same time, in those moments, we feel like a man. Men gravitate to what makes them feel like a man. That's sometimes why we get so into sports. That's sometimes why we're harsh and strong at times that we don't need to be um, and push our way through. We gravitate to things that make us feel like a man. And so we want to look and say, okay, what did God intend from Genesis, from way back in the beginning, way back from the start, when He created us as, as men, was there an intention that He had? Was there something that He had in His mind of what it would look like to be a man? Or were we just created as just some type of uh, biological um, thing, you know, this, this person to then send us out and then we had to discover what it was to be a man in those aspects and to try to find out what it is. God from the beginning, we're going to find out guys, God from the very beginning had us in mind to create us to make us men, separate from women, separate roles, separate leadership, on it goes to be able to say this is what a man looks like. And so what we're going to talk about is the myth of manhood is the way Robert Lewis puts it. Now I want to be real clear. I don't really like the word myth. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it sounds like fake, but we're going to see it as a different definition. So open up your minds to look at it as a different definition. I've had to do that in preparation for this. That word is not the word that I would have chosen in going through this, but it's the word that's in our material, so we'll just properly define it, and then we'll know what we're talking about with it. Um, myth is not synonymous with fiction. Myth is not synonymous with fiction. This is the way that uh, Webster's dis defines it. A myth is any real, so that's where we get, that's where we're going, or fictitious act or uh, story that appeals to the consciousness of people by embodying details or realities. So we're going to go with the real side of that, with manhood, that there is a real aspect. And it embodies, it's a story that appeals to the consciousness of people and embodies the details of realities. When the guy was talking about standing up to his father, did you kind of feel something in you like, yeah, yeah, there was something in your consciousness that went, yes. And when the guy was, uh, when Billy Crystal was talking about Yankee Stadium, didn't you kind of feel like you could feel nuzzled up to your, to your dad there at that moment? It really confirmed something to me. I've been debating and I'm going to just do it after this video clip. I'll call this to be the Lord. I want to take Grace and my little boy to Yankee Stadium this year because they're going to rip it down and just let him be there and see it. He's seven, is what, what, just about seven is what would happen when he would go. And so that's kind of a confirmation. Thank you, Lord, for using Billy Crystal in my life to give me a vacation. That's awesome. Um, it's funny how you can make God into all sorts of things. But um, to be able to do that, you can feel that consciousness. So a myth is not synonymous with fiction. A real myth explains and measures our reality. It explains and measures our reality. Now, I want to give you a couple real myths. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, whenever you talk about Honest Abe, it's kind of a real myth. He seems larger than life. You never have heard his voice. You've just seen an old black and white picture of a tall hat and that you know, long face. And, but when you see it, there's something about you that says, okay, stick to it, go for it, be an honest person. When it's hard and you know, the Union's doing this and the Confederacy's doing this, stand on your morals, stand your ground and do that. There's a little bit of this 
this bigger than life comes out. Um, uh, Bear Bryant, the old uh, Alabama coach, you know, with his, his hat, his, his checked hat standing underneath the goalpost. There's that silhouette, that fictitious, or I should say fictitious, that mythological, that's real, but it's just bigger than life. Wow, that's what I want to be as a coach. I'm reading a book uh, I got at home called When Pride Still Mattered, and it's the biography of Vince Lombardi. And it's pretty interesting. I'm only just a couple chapters into it. I got it over Christmas, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a neat thing. But I've always thought, you know, I've seen this guy on the sidelines, but what was it? So that mythological character coming to life. Uh, for us in Houston, Earl Campbell, you know, Nolan Ryan, those people. I remember seeing those clips of Earl Campbell where he was running at the goal line. He got hit, and he rocked backwards. You remember that one? And then he just fell forward into the end zone. It's like, yeah, that's what it looks like to score a touchdown. Nolan, blood on his face in the Rangers. Remember when he got hit and there's blood all over his shirt and he's still pitching? I was actually at that game. It was great, you know, to, to be there at that, that spot. So a real myth explains and measures our reality. The myth of Genesis, and, and again, this is quotes. I don't want you to quote Pastor Greg on saying the myth of Genesis. But the real stories of Genesis explain and measure manhood both in its ideals and in its ongoing fallenness. So we're going to see in its ideals and its ongoing fallenness. Genesis describes for us our ancestral roots. The TV miniseries Roots, Alex Haley went back and he discovered who he was, Kunta Kente, of what was the moving um, back and looking at the past and to discover his roots and then to be able to move forward in that way. And don't worry if the slides, the computer's been acting up, so I'll just, I'll give you your blank um, that we can, we can have for that. So we're going to look at Genesis, and in looking at Genesis, we're going to move back to see what is it that we were created to do, because this whole quest for manhood is a look back so that we can understand our present, so that we can move into a look forward. Now, Genesis is going to give you a couple things, and this is in, in the little circle uh, bullseye that you have there. Genesis 1, um, the first thing is a wide angle. It's going to give us a wide angle. And I would also encourage you, over that 1 in the circle, just put Genesis, G-E-N. You can just put the, the abbreviation for it, because those signify the chapters. Genesis 1 is going to give us a wide angle view. You know, that's for God created on this day and that day, and the animals and the plants and the sky and the water and all those. It's going to give us a wide angle view. Then Genesis 2, we're going to end up with a little bit more of a close-up view. It's your second blank. And in that close-up view, we're going to have the creation of man on the sixth day. So you're going to have this wide angle, God created everything. Then we're going to get a little bit closer, God created man. And then we're going to get Genesis 3 is going to be our tight focus, and that's going to be the fall of man. And we're going to understand a little bit about that. So let's take the wide angle first. Taking the wide angle first. What does Genesis say about manhood? What does Genesis say about manhood? Number one, it speaks to male and female value. Male and female value. Listen, if you would, uh, verse 26, chapter 1 and 27. And this is what it says. It says, Then God said, Let us, speaking of Trinity, right there, that's when we first begin to see the Trinity in action, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Notice that it's plural. It's not many gods. It's God in different forms. The Son's already created, or already there, uh, you know, because He's God. He's never created. Uh, let, him, let us make Him, make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish and over the sea, the, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air 
and over the livestock and over the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, just so you know, that is the death knell of vegetarianism. Okay, guys? There it is right there. That says eat steak, okay? But not too much steak, right, doctor? Uh, we want to be able to make sure our red, red meat's not too much. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I want you to notice he created male and female, you know, in his image. Women are not subservient to us, and the image of God is on them just as much as the image of God is on us. He's given us a soul and placed his image in us with that. Now, image is a huge statement. Image is a huge statement. Animals eat. Animals do things. Animals have emotions, so to speak. They feel things. They feel aggression. They feel anger. Uh, you know, you spank a dog, he's going to feel shame. I mean, you know, there's all those things. But we have in us the identity or the image of God. That separates us from the animal kingdom. Now, in evolution, evolution is stating that we're just clever animals. That the only thing that separates us is we've got an opposable thumb and we're a little more clever in our thought process. Genesis is saying, no, there is something completely different. Now, I find, just as a little side note, whenever you talk to somebody about evolution, when you talk to them and you say, you know, do you believe that humans are just clever animals? Is that what you think, that we're just more clever than everything else? Most of them will say, you know, and then I'll say something like, you know, I, there's something in me that's a soul. You know, I, I love my wife, and there's something in me with my children that's more than just protect. There's, there's an identity, there's an image there's a realization that there's eternity and all these things. I don't think that I'm just a clever animal. And I also say, as a side note on evolution, well, if, if evolution's true, well, then what's next? It's real arrogant to think that it just stopped with us, right? I mean, what's, what's the next thing we're going to evolve to? I mean, we're just in a chain, right? Because uh, uh, we always end up with we're the best. Isn't that kind of odd? And that even speaks to the image of God in us. These things that we sit above and over. Every person, every, I've never heard an evolutionist talk about, well, what's next? We always got us at the top of the food chain sitting over everything. That's Genesis chapter, 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 26. So the image of God is a huge statement. We have consciousness. We have will. We have reasoning. Um, you know, we have personality. The rest of creation is different. That's also why mad cow disease doesn't bother us like genocide. If we're just clever animals, well, then shouldn't we be upset about extinguishing cows as much as somebody in genocide trying to extinguish a tribe in Rwanda? Well, the image of God separates us from this animal kingdom and from this, uh, from this, this image of God. If you drove by on the road and you saw a dog laying dead on the side of the road, you'll drive by. I've driven by that many times. No big deal. A bird laying dead on the side of the road. If you drove by and you saw a body on the side of the road, be a different ballgame, wouldn't it? That's the image of God. That's what's being spoken to him here. He's endowed us equally. Um, we're equally valuable, male and female, equally endowed, unique and special, that he wants to have a relationship with us. Letter B, it speaks of male and female calling. Okay, This is where we're going to get a little bit different. Be fruitful and multiply. We're going to continue creation by bringing um, another generation. So, Keep being fruitful and multiply. Let's bring more generations. We want you to subdue the earth. Bring out the best wherever you are. Um, rule over the earth. Be a good steward of the earth and its resources. Let's look at verse 28. God blessed them, male and female, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. 
Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we've been given the responsibility to subdue the earth. When you drive past a neighborhood, when you, there's a house being built in our neighborhood, they're already moved in, but they've, it's funny, their yard is gorgeous, but I know why their yard is gorgeous, because I saw the tree trucks come in and plant these beautiful trees, and everybody plant all these bushes, and they hadn't even got to the stage where you've got to mow the yard, much less weed uh, the, um, the flower beds. You know, they just had everybody plant it to be able to do that a couple weeks ago. It's gorgeous. Well, a landscaped yard is subdued tundra, is what that is. Go out and watch, look at a field that's unsubdued. No one's staying, raining over it. The yard man doesn't come in and rain over that grass. The person doesn't get out there and rain over on a Saturday morning and enjoyment over the garden. It's subdued earth. It brings out the best. So instead of weeds, you've got flowers because it was subdued. As men, we're called to subdue the earth. Okay? That's not, yeah. That is to bring out the best. We should bring out the best in our children. Bring out the best in our families. Bring out the best in the workplace. Bring out the best in our Bible study and our churches. Bring out the best in all of those aspects. To rule over is not this, yeah, I'm the man. It is a stewardship. We've been talking about stewardship in our church. Ruling over your finances is being a good steward. They're not ruling over you. You're ruling over them being a good steward. So in that wisdom, God has given us calling. It speaks of male and female calling, that ladies subdue and ladies rule over in different, different aspects, in different ways, and we don't negate that in the least. We are so needed. Can you imagine a world without women? I mean, you know, we joke and we say, oh, wouldn't that be great? Ha, ha, ha. It would be terrible. It would be black and white, nothing but fast food. I mean, there'd be nothing beautiful. I mean, we'd never have anything. You know, there'd be no flowers to put in that. I mean, it's, we really, really appreciate and need ladies. And so our quest for authentic manhood is not negating uh, that gender. It is embracing that gender and being able to give leadership that brings out the best in our wives. Um, I remember a coach, I think it was Bill McCartney, said um, that he heard a sermon and they said, if you want to know the character of a man, just look at the countenance of his wife. And he looked over and he saw... His wife just looked incredibly tired and distraught. He said, I realized at that time I was taking care of the team more than I was taking care of the home. So the character of a man is shown in the countenance of a woman. And we must be able to help them to be everything that they should be. That doesn't mean we're always going to be happy. It doesn't mean you know, every day you get a nap. But that means that you're able to, to really walk in a way that, that shines at Jesus. Uh, letter C. This hints at a very important social structure, okay? Man is the head of the household. Man is a person that, that is the gender that's able to give leadership, and we'll see that in a little bit. We have changed in our culture man to person, okay? We don't have chairmen anymore. We have chairpersons, right? Because we want to make sure, okay, everything uh, is okay with that. We don't have laymen anymore. We have laypersons. We, we want to make sure that we don't have a stewardess. We've got a flight attendant, and there's a place for all of those things, and, and I know some of those fit just really well. I heard of one city uh, was spoken of that they didn't have manhole covers anymore. They had personhole covers, and I'm like, you know, there's not a woman in the world that wants to go underneath a personhole cover. I can assure you that right now, so it, we could take it a little bit too far, 
and we've put it into kind of this androgynous, uh, there is no man, there is no woman, we, we all are very uh, genderless, and that's not good for us at all. I was flipping through the stations uh, last night when I got home from church, and um, I'd, I'd always TiVo the news and watch that, but I was just kind of going through some stations, and I watched this, this, this one um, show for about five minutes. I thought the title was interesting. It was called Cashmere Mafia. Cashmere Mafia, and, and I just I never heard of it, so I just watched for about five minutes, kind of doing a little research. I wasn't like, oh, I wonder if this will be a new hit I can spend an hour on every Wednesday night. So I watched, and, and literally in five minutes, there was, there was a gay uh, lesbian couple um, that was talking about how one was going to carry one baby and one was going to carry the other baby, um, and they were going to do that fair. And then they asked the next, that it was a bunch of ladies eating, and they asked these ladies, well, which one of you is going to, where are you going to get your sperm donor? And so the lady said, uh, can I be excused? And she got up because she wasn't, she was heterosexual, so she made her a little bit uncomfortable, and she got up and left. And it was very interesting. I thought, now that's interesting. That's, that's, that's interesting right there. Man, not needed in this, this moment here. Where's the sperm donor? Group of ladies, we're going to do fine in, uh, you know, in multiplying here and being fruitful and multiplying without a man. Then she gets up and she walks to the restroom. Well, she opens up the door of the restroom. The restroom has got male and female on the same door. The restaurant they're eating in is a very nice restaurant. I, I've, the only places I've ever been where men and women share the restroom are dumps. They're hole in a wall because they only got one restroom. I've never been to a nice restroom. Or nice, uh, I've been to a nice restroom. Never been to a nice restaurant. They didn't have male and female restroom, male and female restrooms. I mean, you know that that would be a little odd. Maybe in New York, I don't know. But but um, she gets there, she opens up the door, and there's a man in there, and it's this little oh oh hey hey sorry sorry, and then they end up you know going on a date later. But I thought, I mean you know it's stupid, but and nobody talks like these people talk. Hey hi, yeah, I mean it'd be like Boy, this is I don't like you. So um, but. Look at that, five minutes. I mean, literally, it's five minutes. I mean, I was standing up. I didn't even sit down a while. I was just standing up, just like, you know, just watch it. But I thought, this shows a little bit about what we're talking about, that we've separated the need for different gender, um, and that we can have one restroom and one gender have kids and all these different things. So it hints at a very important social structure. It hints at a very important social structure. Here's what uh, Genesis chapter 2 says about manhood. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, uh, says this. Is that, is that right? Okay. Let me find it in my Bible. Uh, the, Lord, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of the life, and the man became a living being. Um, and in that, notice that Adam was created first. Adam was created first. Okay? We're hinting at, our goal in this is we're hinting at a very important social structure. Notice that Adam was created first. He could have created both at the same time. Both of them could have been created at the same time. Notice also that Adam is given an occupation and responsibility before Eve's creation. Adam's given a responsibility and a vocation, uh, occupation before Eve's creation. Verse 15 of chapter 2 of Genesis. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden and said, work at it and take care of it. So here he is. You're not working to just pay for your wife's stuff, okay? As a single guy, you've got a responsibility. You've got an occupation. All of that has happened before the creation of Eve, okay? Notice that Adam is instructed by God with the responsibility of leading 
with his word. The responsibility of leading with his word. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. It says, And the Lord God create, commanded man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, they didn't have a Bible at that time. They didn't have you know, Bible studies going on. It was God's spoken word. And so at the very beginning, he's got a responsibility of leadership and leading with God's world, word. Therefore, we are to lead spiritually according to his word. We're to lead spiritually according to his word. This is the big $64,000 question. I hear it a lot, and it's a great question. How do I lead spiritually? How do I lead spiritually? Great, great question. I have a very simple answer for you. You lead your own life spiritually. And if you're leading your own life spiritually, then there's going to be an overflow into leading your family and your home spiritually. Single men, that's why you're not out of the loop on this. You don't wait till you get married to become a spiritual leader. You're leading yourself spiritually. You know what you've done this morning that is a great aspect of spiritual leader, leadership? You are a spiritual leader. Today, you're doing a great job. You got out of bed and you came to a Bible study. That is spiritual leadership. That translates to tomorrow you get out of bed and you get your Bible in your lap and you read and you go, okay. You get the streams in the desert devotional that we have as our church devotional and you read through that. And you say, okay, I'm going to lead myself spiritually. You encounter a moment where it's right turn for sin, left turn for righteousness, and you choose righteousness. That's leading spiritually. Then when God brings a lady to you, single men, or you have a lady uh, for the married men, children, whatever it is, you are a leader spiritually. So now you're walking out and you're now making a decision, right turn for sin with my family, left turn for righteousness. I'm going to take that left turn for righteousness and I'm going to walk that out. So spiritual leadership comes from having the responsibility of leading with God's Word. Letter D. Notice that Adam named the animals. Naming signaled his leadership over creation. Verse 19, Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called Each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave the names to the livestock and the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. So he's now naming the animals. Wouldn't that be a cool thing to see? I'd like to see that. I mean, how do you just... Flamingo. Tiger. I mean, what if you had named a tiger Flamingo? You know, we'd be like, hey, come on. You'd be calling your kids. All right, come on, Flamingo. Get a hit. Let's go. Let's go. You know, it wouldn't wouldn't work the same way. It wouldn't sound the same because we got this definition of it. But kind of a neat thing. Naming shows authority. Naming shows leadership. Anybody with children, that that child got to pick the name? No. That child was born and you said, this is so-and-so. And that name that you chose was the name that they were named and it shows the authority of the parents in naming the child. So we should think about our names and figure out, you know, so we can give them a name that says, okay, this is an important name, and this is what this means, or this is a beautiful name, or this is who you're named after, whatever it is. But it gives an authority that we say, here's your name, and you've been named after, you're so-and-so the third. I had a roommate, his name was Glenn Orville Howard the third. Do you know why we called him Trace, you know? Because he didn't want to go by Glenn or Orville, or Glenn Orville or Howard, but he knew that he was named after his dad, who was named after his grandfather. I mean, it was, that, was a, that was a big deal 
to be the third in their family, and I, I respect that. I think that's neat. So he was able, we're, we're able here to see that Genesis, that Adam is naming. You know, God took Abram, and he made him Abraham. He renamed him because what was happening was incredibly different. He took Saul, and who did Saul become? Paul, writer of 13 books of the New Testament. A new name, that was important. Simon became Peter, you know, and so there's these names that are really important. You see that even in other religions, taking a, a, a piece. You always see there's always a root of truth in, in, in other religions, and they've taken it and they've, they've gone off the wrong way. You see that in Islam. Somebody would, Cassius Clay was then who? Muhammad Ali, right? Because you have this name change of, of these different, different aspects. So let's, let's move on. Next page. Letter E, our last thing, and then we're wrapped up. Notice that Adam is given a helper suitable for him. Okay, that's a, that's a one blank with a whole lot of words in it. A helper suitable for him. That's Genesis 2, verse 18. This is what it says. Um, no, it's not verse 18. Sorry, that's when the beast of the air in the field... Uh, this title gives further evidence of God's original core of the social identity of man and woman. Here's where it says it is in verse 20. So the man gave names of livestock and birds of the air and all the beasts of the field, but for Adam there was no suitable helper found for him. So God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place with the flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had brought out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united with his wife, and they will come, uh, become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Uh, that verse 24 is what I'm going to do when we get to uh, covenant marriage in our milestone <laughs> series on a Sunday morning. So he takes, God takes this woman and takes this rib and makes a woman and finds a helper suitable for him. Do you know that your wife and you are not to be enemies? You know, Kelly and I say a lot of times if we're, ha if we're having a little struggle, we'll say, we're on the same team. We're on the same team. We might be looking at it and you're saying run a post pattern and I'm saying hand off to the fullback, but we're on the same team. We've got to realize that we're on the same team. See, the only difference between men and women is not physical. The biggest difference is not physical. There is a sociological difference between men and women. And we've got to be aware of that if we're going to be real men. In our quest of authentic manhood and discovering how God has put it in Genesis, the difference is not just physical, okay? If that was it, then all you need to become a great husband is eighth grade health. And how many of y'all at the end of eighth grade health were, were ready to be a great husband? None of us. I mean, you're like, dude, we're watching these slides in eighth grade health. It is awesome. I mean, I can't believe it. You know, and going home and flipping through National Geographic and acting like, you know, you're looking at the pictures for other reasons. You're just trying to, wow, it, it is like that, those images. You know, those things, you're probably like, really? You're sick. Well, hey, we're all sick as men, aren't we? So, eighth grade health doesn't prepare you to be this husband. Because the difference is not just physical. The difference is sociological. It's emotional. It's social. Everything, all those things, it's very big difference, very big difference. And so I applaud single men in the room for going through these type of Bible studies because you're going to be a lot better prepared than a lot of us as married men. And I know the married men around the table, a lot of them maybe made mistakes for years. And now you're finally having these aha moments 
in this Bible study of, that's it. I, why, how did I not get that before now? So in looking at this, Genesis 1, to kind of wrap us up, Genesis 1 is, the, you know, on this day he created this, on that day he created that. Genesis 2, we tightened up, didn't we? We saw man and how he was created and what that meant and him ruling and subduing and what those things meant. And then we saw the creation of ladies, uh, of women, uh, females, at the end of that. And then you're going to journey on uh, in the next week and look at chapter 3 in the fall and see how sin affected us. So, biblical manhood, manhood from Genesis, it isn't just a physical thing that, you know, the way God has put us together anatomically is different. It's not that. It is not anatomy. It's the way God has shaped us, and He's placed His image on us as male and female, but He's given us roles, and we are to fulfill those roles and to walk in a biblical manhood that comes from the very creation of the world. God did not create men and then go, well, what do I do with them? God knew from the very beginning, so the best way that we become a great man is we understand how great of a God we serve, and we get to know God. You get to know God as Father, you're going to be a whole lot better Father. When you get to know God and His image of who He is, you'll understand the image of who you are. Let's pray together, and I'll let you break up for your time of uh, questions with each other, being able to um, talk about those things. Let me make sure there's not anything. Uh, let me say one other thing I wrote down in my notes, if you'll give me just one more second. Uh, I don't want to forget this. Um, you know, God created man in His image, and there's a social order in which we lead. And I, w- I, wanna, I wanna say this. Spiritual leadership challenges people in a lot of ways because we see it through the lens of our personality. And, and I'm, I hope that this session removes, removes the lens of your personality. There's some of us in this room that our personality is a little bit more introverted, a little bit more extroverted. Some of us are real drivers, I mean real strong and leader, leader, leader. Others of us are more followers. You know, it may be in your vocation. Some of y'all, you're going to be the chief all day long. And some of y'all are going to be a great Indian in the tribe. That's great. That's awesome. Spiritual leadership is not personality-based. Spiritual leadership is spiritually based. And all of us are on a level playing field at the cross. God didn't say, well, the extroverts come a little closer because you like to talk. Introverts stay back in the back and check it out and see if you really like it. No, there's no wallflowers. There's no uh, extroverts in the cross. We all come to that. So I say this. If you have a tendency in your personality to be a little bit more reserved, a little bit more laid back, a little more passive. I know passive can kind of be a cuss word in men's world. You know, passive is the enemy. But I hope you understand what I'm saying. Just a little bit more laid back. If that's you, I want you to know that's okay. But you might have to step it up a little bit. That's all right. It's good. You might have to just be challenged to say, you know what, I need to step up. I need to take the lead. I need to not just be sitting back saying, well, whatever you think, honey. I need her to feel protected and taken care of, and I need to take the lead. Not just pick something at random, but really walking in leadership in my life. Secondly, maybe you're really assertive, and you might need to tone it down a bit. You may need to say, you know what, honey, whatever you think, that's fine. I support you because your wife might have a tendency to run to you for every decision. She might be a little bit codependent. What do you think? What do you want? And there's times that you might need to say, you know what, I trust you. You make the decision. Don't spend more than $200, you know, but make the decision. You go for it and let her feel the feeling of, yeah, okay, I can make this decision. And then whatever that decision is, you support it. If you thought it should be green and she picked blue, blue's your new favorite color, okay? That's me. 
I, God's in me I, a spiritual gift of leadership. I'm given leadership in the church. And I, I had a friend tell me in ministry before I was here, it was back when I was doing college ministry, he said, I want you to remember your wife is not an employee of yours. Your wife is not somebody who works for you. Your wife is not somebody that's in your ministry as a volunteer. Your wife is your helpmate. Your wife is your co-heir in Christ. And because when I get home, I'm real, I can, you know, all day long I've been seeing things that are wrong and trying to fix them. So I can get the, the, the plate in front of me and go, what's up with the carrots? You know, that's not the deal. Yes, I love these carrots. These are great. This is the best thing you could have ever served. But if you're assertive, you might need to tone it back a notch. Because if not, you'll create a codependency. That everybody will have to run to you because you're the general to find out what the lieutenant's orders are. And you want to be able to say, you know what? You choose. What do you want to do tonight? Where do you want to be a part of? How should we do this? What do you think about this decision? Should we go in this direction or not? So if you have kind of a, a more laid-back personality, my word for you, step up. Step up. If you've got a more assertive personality, pull back a notch. And in doing that, we'll begin to see that our spiritual leadership is not based on our personality. It's based on God's directives. So I had that down that, that uh, I, I want you to, to hear. You know, we're called to be social and spiritual leaders. And in doing that, we've got to sometimes step up and sometimes we've got to pull back. You know, I, I'm, I, I say that with, I get it wrong a lot. I get it wrong a lot. I start making decisions, click, 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 and then I just want to know what's the bottom line, right or left. She wants to talk about it. She wants to talk about it. And we've got to, I've got to be able to pull back. So, yeah, let me, let's talk about that. Let's do that. So let's pray together and divide up. Father, thank you so much for these guys. Thanks for your word. Um, we pray, God, for all the, uh, the ministry of uh, Robert Lewis and all the things that you're doing through men's fraternity and all of those things. Uh, God, you protect those guys. I know there's probably a bullseye on them um, from the enemy. Protect us. And we just love you, God, and we lift you up. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Questions are at the bottom, as you know. Go for it.